Hello everyone, it's July 3rd, 2018. This week, Launcher 1 does a successful captive carry test. In Japan, however, Momo 2 did have an issue, a rapid unscheduled disassembly. Let's see if we can piece back together what may have happened and lift off. Ed, we have the tower. Welcome to episode 165 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Ben. I'm recording in the Inlet Valley, so I'm really close to Edwards and Armstrong and all that good stuff. Cool. Yeah. So are you planning on going there as well? I mean, this has been like a whirlwind tour for you. My dad just poked his head in and said, hey, it would be really cool if we could go out to Edwards today, but he can't think of anything that we would really go out there to do other than just drive around and look at, you know, airplanes that Mm -hmm. are on display. It's not like we have access to to any buildings. I said, you know, we could hop the fence and break into Armstrong and see if there's anybody there on a Sunday. If they are, they might be bored enough to talk to us. But he he, he said that might be a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds illegal, slightly, because uh, I'm sure the fence is there for a reason. Only military police are going to stop us, so it's not that big of a deal. Isn't that a big deal, though? I mean, I, I kind of grew up always in more fear of military police than the regular ones. Though. Oh, oh, yeah. No, 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 no. This is me being totally deadpan sarcastic oh, because, yeah. I can't tell sometimes. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the MP. So after 9-11, I remember um, they locked down Edwards Air Force Base, especially because mm-hmm. we are close to the coast and they don't know what's happening. But yeah, they, they locked the base down and for i think a couple of months you know i was a, I was a kid so i don't remember time very well but i think for a couple of months they had humvees with big old like chain machine guns i think they were m60s on the top and they had two of them stationed out and they had barricades that made you weave back and forth as you approached the base so that you had to drive slow and they would follow you with the machine guns for the first like week or two um it was that's that's scary even before then just like growing up it really just comes down to one thing and that's just that you know being a dumb teenager i would sometimes speed through base and you get yeah. pulled over because they don't tolerate speeding at all yeah. so that was just me misbehaving um but they're much stricter yeah so don't hop the fence <laughs> no 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 i want to make it really clear hey air force if you're listening this is not something i intend on doing um, oh, yeah we do not recommend that all right let's move on to this week in spaceflight history and and we have three winners, and I think a new name among them, right? At least one? Yeah, so this week we have Valentin Frank, the Fell Knight, and then Taylor Marks. And Taylor might be new. I, I don't know. So what is the answer, and what is the clue in reference to? I think I figured it out, though. Yeah, so the, the clue from last week was uh, Apple Computer's first satellite. So this week in spaceflight history is the 8th of July, 2011. It was the last flight of Atlantis, uh, STS-135. So, you know, the end of the shuttle program, which means that uh, Atlantis flew without a backup mission ready to go. In all of uh, the space shuttle's history, the idea was if something happens on orbit, you can just send up another shuttle and rescue them. And uh, this time they flew without a backup because there were no, there were no other shuttles ready to go, which is kind of a weird floaty feeling in my belly when I think about it, even though it's not you know, it's a super huge deal. But anyway, so their their backup plan was, hey, if something happens on orbit, all you have to do is get to ISS. Um, they only flew four people so that they could basically come home on empty Soyuz seats. Um, you know, obviously six people can come home on empty Soyuz seats, but if you do four people, you can bring them all down within a year. And so isn't that an amazing, like, alternate universe where STS-135 gets up to station, does its pitch maneuver, and they find there's a huge chunk taken out of out of the thermal protection on the bottom, and they go, you know what? We're going to leave this shuttle in orbit. And those folks 
go from having a, a short mission to all of a sudden, you know, having to be up there for a year or more. Okay, so a year or more, you're saying that the shuttle as well would be on would be in orbit for a year because I thought the shuttle could not remain in orbit for that long. I mean, yeah. So I don't I don't know what their plan would have been. Maybe they would have um, deorbited it autonomously. Maybe they would have you know updated the mm-hmm. the software and. and tried to deorbit it. Maybe they would have just le- left it attached to station. Uh, maybe use it as, uh, you know, micrometeorite shielding or something. I, I don't know what the deal would have been. Wow. That's kind of like the orbital equivalent of a giant doorstop. Like you have <laughs> a huge shuttle. I guess we're just going to repurpose this to shield us from micrometeorites because I don't remember the maximum length of time, but it's it's not long, right? Like maybe yeah. a month or two, maybe. Right. I, I if, think it's, it's mostly the fuel cells that run out of fuel. So maybe, maybe they could make the adjustments they need and, and repurpose it as, as living quarters. Also, um, this shuttle flew an MPLM, a multi-purpose logistics module, which now on orbit is the PMM Leonardo permanent multi-purpose module. And that's basically just an, another ISS module that's just, you know, plugged in and, and is just there for storage. So if this would have happened, you know, we would have, uh, my guess is that Leonardo was already there installed. So my guess is that MPLM, I think this was uh, Raffaello would have been up there and turned into, you know, basically a PMM. I don't, I don't know. I think it's one of the more interesting failure scenarios to, to think about. And this was STS-135, uh, and I'm forgetting, what was the very last one? Because it wasn't more than that, right? Or was this No, it was STS-135. Not just of this particular shuttle, but the last of the entire right. program. Right. And and that's that's why they didn't have another shuttle ready to go to, to rescue them. If oh, that's what you're... Okay. I thought initially you were just saying that this was the last flight of that shuttle, but you meant right. yeah, the no. last flight of shuttle. Okay. Yeah. So in order to do that, they actually had to do a little bit of hardware prep work and, and so what they did was they actually built custom-fitted Sokol flight suits as well as uh, Soyuz seat inserts, which are molded specifically to the astronaut's body. So I, I believe these are the only astronauts who landed on a shuttle but had Sokol and seat inserts ready to go. So the clue was about Apple Computer. And uh, so the key here is that this mission flew two iPhone 4s. And I have an iPhone 4. And the software that they ran has actually been modified and released publicly. Um, So I've been trying to find something to do with my iPhone 4. I think I might have to turn it into a space station hardware mock-up. Might have to do something with that. (laughs) So, but would that be possible to do? Like, are you able to install that software? Yeah, they modified it for on-the-ground use, just as an educational tool. Is this like an actual change of the operating system or just some software that you add? No, just an app. Oh, okay. Yeah, so um, one of the correct guessers this week was Valentin Frank. And uh, in his tweet, he did say, just so you know, um, that they did bring up those two iPhones, but they also brought up a pair of Android smartphones. Yeah, I'm getting to it. Just to bounce things out. Okay. (laughs) All right. <laughs> yeah, the the Android folks like you are going to get all up on me mm-hmm. if I don't mention it. Yeah. So I know it seems weird to kind of focus on these iPhones for, you know, the end of a beautiful space program. But I really think that this software that they flew is really, really cool. And, and so I wanted to kind of dig into it. So there were four major components of this app that did different things. So first was 
um, an app called Limb Tracker. And so the idea is you can point it out the window and take a photo of the limb of the earth and it would do uh, image recognition and figure out what the curvature of the earth was, the, uh, the apparent curvature of the earth. And from that, figure out what your altitude was. That's cool. <laughs> Isn't that cool? That's that's a very easy way, I guess, of calculating altitude on orbit. Not I, super accurate, but it works. I guess not. I mean, yeah. I See, well, those are the kinds of things that I. it's always hard for me to tell. You say it's not super accurate, but of course, if you could very precisely measure it, then it would be, right? But you can't yeah. in this case, well, I guess. Well, you, you can't when you're orbiting a planet with a puffy atmosphere like ours. Yeah. So Dan in the chat says orbital period is much more easy to measure. And yeah, that'll give you your altitude uh, or at least your semi-major axis. And so what's interesting is they also did an app called State Ac or State Acquisition. And this, I think, is like the cream of the crop. This is what you want on your phone if you're lost in space. The idea is you take photos out the window and it does image recognition to identify coastlines. And so it can identify the orientation of the coastline, the size, the, you know, the apparent size of the coastline. And then if you take photos over a period of time, it actually can figure out your ground track. And if you take enough photos, it also uses uh, accelerometers on board the phone. But if you take enough photos, it actually calculates your orbital parameters. How That's cool is neat. that? You you don't just have altitude. You don't just have semi-major axis, but you have all of your orbital params. That's really cool. But do you have to keep the phone in a certain orientation? Because you said that it uses the accelerometers, and I guess the orientation might count for something, but I wouldn't think so, though. Yeah, so the, so the accelerometers, right, if it's in a fixed position, those accelerometers are going to read zero, unless there are tidal effects pushing it back and forth. Those are to orient... So that you can just hold it and it can tell what orientation it is relative to previous photos, which I mean, honestly, that I think that's just to make the calculations easier because you could take photos in any orientation. And the fact of the matter is you're not yeah. going to think you're moving backwards if you see yourself moving up the east coast of the U.S. Like you're, you're going to know which right. way you're going. I actually don't know how accelerometers work. So they work just as well <laughs> in zero G. Yeah. Yeah. So today's accelerometers think of uh, like a, a comb, like a a hair comb. So it's just a tiny little piece of metal, usually shaped like an E, uh, or, you know, sometimes it'll be two combs facing each other interlocking. And all it does is it uses magnetic fields to detect uh, how much one of those tines is deflecting back and forth. My guess is always that there was like a little ball bearing in some sort of encapsulated sphere and it, it tracked that. But I mean, I didn't Yeah, know. I mean, that that is one way to do it, but that's that's a much larger solution. So, so yeah, that, that's that. Uh, Dan in the chat asks, do I know how many photos it needed? And from what it sounds like, it can work off of just a few photos. But if you take a bunch of photos, it gets better and better and better. Um, then there were two more. Um, let me do the, the boring one first. It was called Sensor Cal uh, for sensor calibration. And basically, they had a, a reference image that they could take photos of. And I think it was just um, testing out some spatial orientation software. Pretty I mean, relatively boring, you know, it's in space, so it's cool. But, and then the last one was called LFI, which stands for life cycle flight instrumentation. And this one is super, super cool. Um, so basically what it did was you would open the app and it would block out uh, a chunk of memory 
and write a known uh, sequence of ones and zeros. And then it would sit and monitor that memory for single bit upsets, which happen when cosmic rays hit your memory. And so we know that cosmic rays are a thing. We know that they cause single bit upsets. Um, So this isn't discovering or necessarily measuring cosmic ray uh, or cosmic radiation. What it's doing is looking at how well an iPhone can survive with known quantities of cosmic rays. And I think it's such a I mean, something about that just tickles me that they're like, okay, we could build specific hardware to do this, but instead we're going to take an off-the-shelf iPhone, write some code for it, and just watch and see if it gets hit. Well, and that's interesting because if you know the quantity of radiation and then you find out what or how that affects the iPhone, then from there you could use it to measure radiation in space. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's as if phones can't do enough already and then Mm -hmm. some clever people figure this stuff out and it just goes to show like... It's kind of amazing what a smartphone can do, like if you're clever enough, you know, um, the kinds of apps that people develop. Remember that this isn't the only way to do it because um, AstroPie actually did it with their camera. They just put a piece of black tape over the camera and waited for Cosmic Rays to hit the CCD. So it's like, yeah, there, there are so many different ways to do this. It's, it's all physics, right? It all works. It's not like we're in a simulation where, where the things that the developers thought of worked and nothing else does. It's like everything actually works. It's so interesting to me how it's always people developing apps for smartphones that figure this stuff out. Like <laughs> no one's going to develop an app that you know, like allows my laptop to detect radiation. But as sure as the sun will rise, <laughs> um, someone will develop an app on a phone that can do exactly that because that's just what people do. And I, and I guess it's just because phones are so ubiquitous. Yeah, they're cheap to fly to space. So uh, these iPhones ended up getting shipped back down on a Soyuz, but also on board STS-135, as the Android user has already pointed out. Uh, There were two Nexus S uh, phones, and I believe that those are still on orbit because they were installed in the Spheres experiment, which is pretty cool. uh, I'm sure most people listening to this are familiar with them, but they are big plastic soccer ball looking uh, devices with a camera and I think a display. But then the really cool thing is that you can put, I believe, a CO2 cartridge. I don't think it's a an N2 uh, or a, ni- a nitrogen cartridge. It's that standard like whipping siphon cartridge. And I think it's, I think they're filled with CO2, but you know, you can just as easily get them filled with nitrogen and nitrous oxide. But anyway, I think they're CO2. You just plug in the standard cartridge and it's got uh, cold gas thrusters and these things can fly around and and do their thing. They have two of them. Uh, and now there are now two new, uh, like a, like a follow on to spheres, I think up there, but uh, I think spheres is still there. And I think those Nexus phones are still there. So the phones, uh, the Nexus S phones are still integrated into the spheres modules. Like what are they doing? Yeah, no, they're, they're the brains of the spheres, I believe. So also on board, uh, shuttle, uh, was the MPLM, which I mentioned. Uh, there was also a new pump for the external thermal cooling system, uh, there was also the robotic refueling mission, which I think was pretty neat, and I wish that there was like more video of it. Uh, and then also a system called Tridar, um, which has also been retired, um, but was basically a, a visual docking system experiment where they were playing around with using uh, using cameras to come up with three dimensions of well, uh, six axis 
uh, docking guidance, which is pretty cool. Well, okay, so that was a cool This Week in Space Flight history involving smartphones. I always love that. Uh, what do you have for next week? All right, next week in 2000, the clue is sometimes when the star can't make it out on stage, an intern will have to do. That one I don't know. Uh, sometimes when the star can't make it out on stage, an intern will have to do. I'm guessing this has nothing to do with theater. Maybe This Week in Space Flight history is suddenly going to be This Week in Dramatic Arts history. Well, if it happens in space, then yeah, it totally could be. Has there ever been a theatrical performance on station? Yes. Uh, Chris Hadfield's music video. I don't know if that counts, though, because I'm thinking <laughs> of theater, theater, like, you know, Shakespeare or something, like actual actors, like reading lines, that I'm, that kind I'm of thing. Sure, that would be I'm neat. I'm sure it's happened. I don't know if it has, but it totally should. I, I'm sure that one of the astronauts so far has been a Shakespeare nut and has been like, I'm going to be the first person to recite Shakespeare in space. Yeah. So this is this is kind of dumb, and I'm going further into the weeds here. But somebody brought up on Reddit this week that it's going to be really cool once BFR is up and running. We can film actual movie sequences in space because it's big enough that you could literally build sets inside of it and then go and and have a couple of days in space where you film a zero-G movie or segments of a movie in zero-G. Isn't that going to be amazing? That is amazing, and that is something that Hollywood can afford to do. If SpaceX brings the cost down enough to meet them halfway, uh, they will go for that. That would be amazing. You would still have to fly your actors there. I don't imagine they would turn that down because uh, what a <laughs> right. cool opportunity. Yeah, you could have like just a set on orbit for doing sequences in zero G. Well, the thing is, it's it's BFR, so you could fly it up and then fly it back home. Like you don't have to do any docking. It can be a single mission. That's true. <laughs> That's pretty cool. It's not like shuttle, so you could just have one mm -hmm. stationed there, keep it there, and then just fly actors up to it. Although I don't know if that would be practical. Yeah, that, maybe that would a big Lamar. That that would be sensible if you could afford to pay SpaceX to keep a BFR in space. But I've got a feeling they're going to want to build their sets, put it up in space, film it, and bring it back home and stop paying for it. Maybe for long term, for, for like a good TV series, like if you were doing The Expanse, I mean, that would be a great opportunity. <laughs> Make your uh, set of the Rocinante, right? At least do the orbital version of that. And you yeah. can just have that for the next, you know, whatever, seven seasons or something. Oh, gosh. That's a great PR gimmick because who wouldn't want to watch a show that actually takes place in space? Think well, about it. And for me, like the fact that you're going to be able to see people actually moving in zero G on screen, because I mean, yeah. all of our zero G movement is so, so bad, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. It sucks. Anyway. Okay. We need, we need to move on. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Getting way off topic there. Yeah. So the clue is next week in 2000, sometimes when the star can't make it out on stage, an intern will have to do. So if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Launcher one is to do a captive carry test. So yeah. some, some progress is being made here. Um, and that's happening, well, we don't know exactly when, right? But sometime within the next week? Yeah, I, well, I, I, think it, I think it's as early as this week. So I got to start out by saying that my dad didn't send me this news item. Uh, and usually whenever Virgin Orbit does something, my dad emails me right away. He's like, oh, look what they're doing. But yeah, so Launcher 1 is the rocket. Cosmic Girl is the modified... 747 that's going to carry it and do air launches. So what's happening is this week they are installing the pylon that'll actually allow you to mount uh, the rocket under the wing. Um, so once that happens, they will install uh, a test article 
and they'll take it up for a captive carry flight. Um, they'll be looking at flutter and other aerodynamics. And it sounds like they might also be uh, testing the release mechanism uh, and basically dropping their test article to the ground. It's not clear if they're going to do that on, on this flight or a second flight. And, and the thing here is that right now they have scheduled one flight and then they're going to orbit. Um, they're saying that they can add a second test flight if they need to. From what I, the sources that I read, it kind of sounds like maybe the drop test would fly on a second flight. So maybe they're not necessarily going to do the release mechanism. So we'll, we'll see. If it's a captive carry test, then I thought that by definition right. it meant <laughs> right. they would have to land with the thing. Yes. So what if they had some other way of fixing it to the 747? Oh, and then so they like could... they, yeah, so they bolt the test article on and then they just right. test the latch. Yeah, that's a, that's a possibility. What I heard was that they, the test article, they specifically called it an inert test article, which meant that they could drop it to the ground and just lose it. Yeah, it's, it's not super clear, but, uh, potentially they could be doing this captive carry test and then going to orbit right after that or, or as their next flight once they've analyzed all their data so launcher one is very very close to flying and this makes me very happy um also you know it's within a quick drive of where i'm sitting now um and uh, i'm going to be gone by the time they actually fly it so i told my dad to see if he can keep an eye out for me and maybe he can go see it well i mean they take off from a runway i mean i guess that's the only part that you could really watch because after that they're pretty high up so how much better is the view going to be from there yeah i i guess you're right okay thanks for just you yeah. know, <laughs> ruining all of my hopes and dreams so uh so for orbit they have not announced what their payload's going to be um it sounds like they don't have a customer for the first flight um but i this is really good humor, and I really appreciate this. Um, Stephen Isley, uh, the vice president of business development uh, over at Virgin Orbit, said jokingly, uh, the first payload, it'll be 12,000 mini Tesla Matchbox cars. And oh, gosh, that is such a great joke. I so appreciate that. And he, he laughed and he's like, got real serious. He's like, no, but seriously, that's not going to be the payload. <laughs> If they did 12,000 mini Teslas, they better not release them because that's just a, <laughs> I mean, that is, yeah, that is a cool way of propagating the Kessler syndrome, I suppose, yeah. but I just wouldn't want to see that. Well, and how embarrassing would it be to get hit with an MMOD and, you know, find a little needle of an axle jammed in your in your spacecraft and go, oh, we know where this came from. I guess that would do good for uh, the statistics as far as, you know, how likely are you to get into an accident? <laughs> I guess with a Tesla, not yeah. in a Tesla, but, you know, I mean, that's a head-on collision at five miles per second. Yeah. Uh, so so Dan says it doesn't matter if they deorbit it within a few weeks. So, yeah, they could, they could go into a low orbit and, uh, you know, do a humanity star made out of uh, Matchbox mm -hmm. cars. I like that idea. All right. Let's move on to our next story, uh, Momo 2 crashes so I, yeah. i'm willing to bet that no one has heard of momo 2 except for oh, a really? few people and i think it probably not i mean i don't know because i was not familiar with it yeah and we didn't announce it on the last show which i feel bad about i believe it was a twitter follower had suggested that we cover this right that and our our discord chat was watching uh so if you scroll up in in discord there are a lot of uh long faces as people watch this thing crash so we we previously talked about momo back in episode 119 it was a short and sweet where we talked about their launch abort so that that was uh momo one back in july of 2017 and basically it flew for 66 seconds then they lost contact so they shut down the engine and it came you know crashing back down to earth momo is is built to fly to 100 kilometers and in this instance 
uh, Momo 1 flew to 20 kilometers, which is 12 miles. This uh, mission was Momo 2. Originally, it was going to fly in April, but they delayed it due to a nitrogen uh, leak. The, the cold gas system ha had a leak. Um, so they delayed it until this week. Oh boy, the video is so sad. They start the engine, it clears uh, the launch rail, and then the engine shuts off. And it coasts upward for just a bit. Like you can see how much inertia it had and it comes back down mm -hmm. and lands on its tail and explodes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It sucks. Well, it was a little bit reminiscent of the Antares, I think it was. But I mean, this oh, didn't blow yeah. up. I, I mean, it, it did. It did blow up once it hit the ground, but it yeah. didn't blow up in air. So it just seemingly shut down. Well, so there what if you look at the footage it's like just as it's beginning to clear the launch rail you can see what looks like a propulsive vent to the side um oh, from the that. engine yeah you can see a little a little spurt of flame and so uh i i saw that and i go oh boy that's not supposed to happen and I'm looking at it, I'm like, I'm betting that that's part of the engine blowing out. And so uh, smarter people than us, namely the TU Delft D.A.R.E. team, uh, kind of did some diagnosis. And they are expecting that this is a cooling jacket or feed system failure on the fuel side. So that's fuel spraying out that they, they fly ethanol. Um, so that's fuel spraying out. So then once the fuel system is interrupted, all that's coming out of the engine bell is their liquid oxygen. And that, that's definitely what it looks like. So yeah, may, maybe they had some sort of overheating or, or maybe they had a, a manufacturing defect or something. I'm very impressed because I did not notice. I wouldn't have even oh, thought I, to pay close enough attention. I, I noticed it the it first time I watched it. Uh, I, well, I was also watching it with the screen very close to my face. <laughs> Just real quick, I want to talk about Momo's specs. So it's an ethylock system, so they're flying, you know, vodka, basically. And it's helium pressurized. I've seen a couple of people refer to it as uh, a pressure-fed system, and I got trapped into thinking that maybe it was nitrogen pressurized. I don't know why I would think that, because that's a bad idea. Anyway, it's, <laughs> it's helium pressurized, and uh, it's, it's a really tiny little vehicle. It's 10 meters tall and 50 centimeters uh, wide. Uh, and it weighs just over a metric ton. And this is, you know, a, a private vehicle. It's built by Interstellar Technologies. And like the main funding comes from, I believe, the owner's personal uh, cash stores, which he built up by building uh, an ISP, an, an internet service provider. Um, and then they also did some crowdfunding. So this is this is really cool. I'm I'm really bummed that that this didn't work because it's it's very cool and you know it it is just a sounding rocket, but I mean it's still a liquid rocket that you know is a prelude to an orbital rocket. Let's do some short and sweet. And what is our first one? It has something to do with proton. Yeah, first up, Rogozin says no more protons. Uh, so, quote, the task is as follows. Produce the necessary number of proton rockets in accordance with already signed contracts, then close the project, said Rogozin, the general director of Roscosmos. However, when ILS president Kirk Peischer was asked about contracted flights, he said they have $1 billion worth of contracts remaining. He also contradicted slash clarified Rogozin by saying that, quote, while Russian space industry officials grapple with a possible future transition to new vehicles, unquote, that ILS will continue to sell rockets to the government. Uh, there's some indication that the as yet unfunded 
Proton Medium will take up some slack, but the majority of the burden seems to be placed squarely on the Angara rocket. Next one, uh, Electron Delay feels a bit familiar. Yeah, so this again. So back in May, they found an issue with a first-stage motor controller during a wet dress rehearsal and had to make some software changes. Uh, during their launch attempt Tuesday, uh, which was June 26th, they encountered the same issue again, though it's not clear why their previous fix didn't do the trick. Rocket Labs tweeted the following day that they are standing down to further investigate because, uh, this is a quote, the only metric that counts in the launch business is 100% mission success, which uh, obviously that's true. They will eventually figure it out and they will launch, but uh, this is the third or fourth time, or I guess it's just, no, is it the second time? Oh, yeah, uh, it's business time has been delayed a more times than I can count at this point. I mean, it's... I think it's like three times in, right? They were delayed. Uh, uh, yeah, at least. I think I think it might be... I think it might be more than that. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. We have a couple this week. Uh, the first one is in reference to uh, something we said about RFNA, which is red fuming nitric acid. Yeah, I appar- apparently I said red foaming and nobody caught it. <laughs> so I I know it's fuming. I I mean I know it's like it fumes and it puts out you know it's volatile, not foaming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> foaming is bad for. I actually do remember you saying that. It did kind of strike me as odd, but I thought, okay, I guess it foams. It's like a thing that this stuff does. But yeah, I mean, now that I think about it, I don't know why I thought that. It's clearly red fuming nitric acid. Yeah, okay, so yeah. so thanks to Leon R. and James Maxey for catching that one. And then next up, we have a correction from Jeff Snively. And Jeff pointed out that it's called LOPG. And I we had a lot of discussion about it being called LOPG. Mm-hmm instead of uh, the Lunar Gateway. And I think we talked about it and then went back to calling it the Lunar Gateway because it's easier to pronounce. And then uh, I think that got cut out of the show. I think it was, I kept calling it the Deep Space Gateway because I didn't oh. know what else it was called. Right. And right. and then Jeff tweeted that, no, it's actually called uh, the Lunar Orbiting Platform Gateway, Ugh, um, which is not. a change that was made back in February. Yeah, not yeah. the best name. Not Lop, the best name. Lop, Lop G. Um, yeah. So a, a more uh, substantial correction than just uh, weird nomenclature, thanks uh, NASA, uh, but but a more substantial correction that Jeff has um, is that it, it's actually not flying on EM two like we like we were saying. So EM two is actually now a block one flight and not a block one B flight, which I think we've actually mentioned. And, and block one is not big enough to fly. Uh, the Deep Space Gateway, haha, ha, sue me. Um, <laughs> and David, you you wrote down here that you were looking at an out-of-date PDF for that. Yeah, yeah, I think the reference that I was using was a little bit out-of-date. It was from yeah. last year, and you there know you things go. change a lot. Yeah, so that's what happened, because just looking at the Wikipedia article here, all of the EM missions are for the construction or maintenance of the Lunar Gateway, but the EM-2 mission, uh, yeah, that was kind of scratched, and now... The launch of the power and propulsion part of the gateway, the station, well, I don't know what to call it now. Um, <laughs> yeah, that they don't have an actual launcher for. It just says it's a commercial launch vehicle, but uh, they, yeah, haven't, maybe. they haven't specified which one. Right. So, so yeah, so EM2 is, is also delayed. We said that it was going to fly in 2022, but it's actually 2023. And right now it's uh, slated to be a crewed Orion lunar flyby. So I think it'd be pretty cool to fly the PPE module 
on a commercial launch, but I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. I, I have a feeling this is going to continue to change. It probably will be a commercial launch. I mean, that is the that's obviously the cheapest option. I mean, if they could get a Falcon Heavy to get it out there or something, then that's the way to go. Um, to be perfectly honest, and I'm not going to you know beat this dead horse, but they should be doing that with all of these various modules. Just get SpaceX to do it. You don't need SLS. But that's a whole other yep. it's a whole other discussion. All right, moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. We just got one launch, and that is all. So uh, this is a progress mission, I believe, right? Yep. Yeah. So this is a Soyuz 21A flying progress MSO9 or 70P if you're NASA. Yeah, just a resupply mission. Um, so this is flying on July 9th at 21.51 hours UTC. So right before our next show. All right. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Or I guess just the one. Event. <laughs> Maybe a rocket lab launch in the near future, but your guess is as good as mine, everyone. So, all right. Time to deorbit the show and cue the music, most of which is brought to you by Ronald Jenkins. Check him out at ronaldjenkins.com, and some of which is brought to you by Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut. If you liked this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com. Dot com slash orbital podcast thanks to our five dollar and up patreon supporters in the ground control chat room or listening to the show live you can connect with us on twitter and reddit at orbital podcast you can send questions and comments to info at the orbital mechanics.com for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links please visit our website at the orbital mechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies so that's all and we will see you in one week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody